Good morning. I'd like to begin our time of studying God's Word together by sharing with you a little of what's been going on in my family's life recently. You know, I miss you all. I wish that I could hear more of what you've been experiencing in recent months. I'm so grateful for those in my life group whose journeys I've been able to share in, mostly remotely as we've uh, sheltered in place and Zoomed together. Two and a half weeks ago, Dana flew to Alabama to be with her elderly parents, both of whom had been exposed to COVID-19. Two weeks ago, her mom was hospitalized with the virus. Currently, she is slowly recovering. Meanwhile, Dana has been caring for her dad, who's suffered with dementia for a number of years now. This Wednesday, Dana's dad died uh, from dementia, it seems, with an assist from covid And we rejoice that he's with the Lord, but we are grieving his absence from our lives. This Thursday, Dana was tested, and we'll find the results out early next week. At this point, she has no symptoms, so I hope that you will be praying for her. And if some of you are wondering why I'm not with her, well, I want to be, and we've actually purchased tickets that I haven't used, because at her request, I've stayed here to protect me from exposure. I may be heading that way sometime soon, but whatever happens, we are grateful for your prayers. At the same time, my son and his wife in Southern California were exposed. They've both tested positive, and the good news is they're recovering, and we're grateful for that. I hope that we'll all be praying for all of us as we continue through this season. Some may be sick, others may be facing job loss, still others dealing with anxiety or depression, growing out of the lockdown, many other things. And just more than ever, I hope you sense our mutual need for one another. And that leads directly into our message today. It's week three of our series, Regather. And as you heard at the beginning of this service, our regathering here in our campus has been delayed. We'd planned to reopen this next Sunday, July 19, but now we're looking forward uh, toward a later date. As I processed that decision and asked God what he wanted to say to our Southwinds family as we move closer toward that day of regathering, that, that day that God knows and we don't yet, that day we all hope will be sooner rather than later, I sense God's leadership to speak on unity. Unity is a vitally important theme in the Bible, and I think many of us don't realize it. The truth is, God's word commands God's people to walk in unity repeatedly, and I think we often overlook it. Maybe it's because we live in a world that's incredibly polarized. Maybe it's because we're, we're so used to pretty much everyone fighting about pretty much everything all the time. Maybe it's because some of us like the conflict and the outrage a little too much. See, we're living in a cultural moment where we are polarized politically and racially and culturally. We're polarized even as Christians. This week, um, I saw some of the edges of that polarization in some of the responses to our second reopening survey. Some people said they would not return to on-campus services as long as masks were required, and, and some said they wouldn't return unless we required everyone to wear a mask. Now, I'm not at all saying who's right here. I'm just saying many of us feel very strongly about wearing masks, and many of us feel very strongly about not wearing masks. How do we respond and live in a moment like this? I I know that God's word says some things to us. I know that God's word speaks to the conflict and the outrage and the polarization that we are living with daily. And here's what God's word says. God's word tells us to walk in unity. 
God's word tells us that Christ followers must learn to move past our differences. We must choose unity. Why? Because we serve a God who is one, and therefore we must be like him. We must be one. We must walk in unity. Why is unity so important right now? Unity always matters. But I believe in the weeks and months ahead, what we've been going through as a society and as a church in 2020 has the potential more than ever to pull us apart. There are so many issues surrounding this pandemic that many of us have different opinions and thoughts on. There are so many current political and cultural issues that many of us have different opinions and thoughts on. And it's a very interesting thing. The Bible doesn't tell us to come to agreement on all our opinions and thoughts. In fact, if you read the New Testament closely, you will see that the writers of Scripture assume different opinions and thoughts among the people in Christ's church. And it is out of that assumption that God's Word repeatedly calls God's people to walk in unity. I want to take us to Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. And I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. After we study God's Word, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper And there's some things you need to know before we read these words. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is about the church, God's people, the the bride of Christ. And like Paul does in so many letters, he begins Ephesians by talking about what we should believe. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul lays out enormous doctrinal truths about God and his sovereignty, about predestination and grace and salvation, about reconciliation, about God's cosmic plans. He he tells us what we should believe. But in the second half of Ephesians uh, chapters 4 through 6, Paul does what he often does in his letters after he lays out doctrine. He, He tells us how we should live in light of all those enormous doctrinal truths. And it's very interesting where he starts. And Paul is going to address all kinds of real-life issues in Ephesians 4 through 6. Anger and rage, honesty and stealing, sexual purity, abusive speech, bitter, unforgiving hearts, marriage and parenting and work relationships. But he starts with unity. The first thing he goes after is this. He says, let's talk about getting along. Let's talk about loving each other. Let's talk about unity. Now, as we read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 today, I want you to think about this. It seems that what is on the heart of God, when he thinks about his people living out his grace, is that his people would walk in unity that we would be this, this island of wholeness and oneness in this fractured, divided, and polarized world. With that in mind, here's what Paul writes. Would you look at your copy of God's Word or follow along on the screen? Beginning in verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Three things I want you to see in this text, and the first one is this. You can write this down in your notes 
God cares deeply about our unity as a church. Again, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, Paul says, it's important. He says, I urge you. It's serious. It matters. This word walk was an ancient metaphor for daily life, for daily conduct. Walking here just means how we live. And the word worthy contains the idea that that something is aligned with something else. So you might say uh, something along these lines. You know, the police officer was living a life worthy of the uniform. Or, put it negatively, the police officer was living unworthily of his position as an officer. And, And what that means is the office or role has a particular value to it. And then that officer's life was either aligned or unaligned with that role. And you need to note the primary focus here is the the value of the position, the the worth of the role. And for us, it's the worth, it's the value of the calling. It's something that is fixed and objective outside of us, not inside us. See, unity is not about us personally. It's larger than us. It's about more important things than our personal desires or preferences. This truth really gets driven home when we read John 17, verses 20 to 23. This comes at the end of Jesus' prayer for his disciples uh, and by extension his church, which is us. This is a prayer that happens right before Jesus goes to the cross. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let me make two observations from these verses. First, Unity in the church is so important, Jesus died for it. You see, right after these words, Jesus went to the cross. Why? Well, listen closely because, friends, the story, this story, has the power to change your life forever. God, God created every single one of us, and at this moment, God is sustaining every single one of us. And every single one of us, the Bible says, has sinned against God, meaning we have turned aside from God's ways to our own ways. We have said that we know better than God what is best for our lives. And as a result of our sin, we are separated from God and we will one day die. That's the penalty for sin. If we die in the state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from God. But the Bible also says God loves us so much. He sent his son Jesus, God in the flesh, into the world where Jesus lived that life we could not live, a perfect life of no sin. And then, even though he had no sin for which to die, Jesus chose to die. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. And then as if that wasn't enough good news, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave showing that he had conquered sin and conquered death so that any one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, any one of us can be restored to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. 
Anyone, anywhere, including anyone today, right now, friend, anyone who turns from themselves and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven all their sin and and given eternal life with God. And, And I invite you to receive God's love in your life today if you haven't done that. And when you do, you will realize that this is what unites the church. This is who the church is. We are not a group of people who share the same history, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. We are not a group of people who share the same political positions. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died to make us one around himself. Just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him, unity is so important in the church that Jesus died for it. Second, unity in the church demonstrates to the watching world the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Jesus prays that this unity will be a reality so that the world might know that God sent him to die for their sins. In other words, if we aren't united, if we're just like every other part of our polarized world, why in the world would people be interested in listening to our message? But if we're united, that's intriguing. That's interesting. People will stop and listen to what we say when we are one. Our complete unity lets the world know that the Father sent the Son. So unity matters, and God cares deeply about it. It is so important. Here's a second truth that we need to know to walk in unity. You can write this down as well. God creates our unity, but we maintain it. Paul says, that walking in a manner worthy of the calling means that we must be, and these are the words of verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, this is so important. You might need to catch this. Unity among God's people already exists. God created it when he saved us and gave us new life, when he adopted us into his family, when he made us all part of his bride, his people, the church. And so the goal for us is not to become unified. You see, you can't maintain something that isn't already there. We already have it. God has given it to us. If you go back to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16, you will see there that Paul is telling us we're already unified. Why? Because of what the gospel has already accomplished. We are reconciled with God, and because of that reconciliation, now we are reconciled with people. We are one in Christ. The Holy Spirit has made that possible. And that means our goal is to maintain or preserve or keep or guard the unity that already exists. Again, Paul's appeal is an urgent one. This this word eager in verse 3 means spare no expense, waste no time, do everything you can. It's like he's saying do this and, and do this right now. And again, what unifies us? is the greatest reality in the universe, Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf, the gospel. But we need to ask a question to to really get why this is so important to the Apostle Paul. This theme runs throughout Ephesians. Why is unity such a big deal? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you'll see that, that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, all things will be brought together in their proper place, and that is in relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to rule over everything. Everything will be submitted to him. And then if you go to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, 
you will see there that the manifold wisdom of God is seen through the church and it's seen by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places because it is through the church that God's plan is being put on full display. In other words, as God's people, we, the church, are living illustration. Therefore, because God is uniting all things under the rule of Christ and because the church is to give expression of this, our unity has cosmic significance. It shows forth the present and the future unity in Christ to those on earth and those heavenly beings who are watching this whole thing happen. But Paul also draws our attention to one more thing. Look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now what you need to see here is that Paul grounds or bases the importance of this unity on truth. It's not just about how we feel toward one another. He, he grounds our unity ultimately in truth, the truth of the oneness and the unity of God. Notice the recurrence of this word one. Paul says there is one body of Christ and there is one spirit that empowers and preserves this body. This is the one body uniting to Christ in which all believers everywhere now participate. Theologians have called this the the universal church. And in the New Testament, we see local expressions of this universal church. Today, we call them local churches. And Southwinds is a local church, an expression of the universal church. Furthermore, Paul says, as as Christians, we have one hope. And in Ephesians, our our one hope can be summed up in in chapter 1, verse 10, where, where Paul says, all things will one day be under the rule of one Lord, who is Jesus Christ. And because... There is only one Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one faith. And because there is only one faith, there is only one baptism. That baptism that symbolizes the one faith that unites us to Christ. Do you see the oneness permeating verses four through six? You see, Paul is making a point. God is one, and therefore his people must be one. Paul sums it up by by drawing our attention to the supreme authority of God the Father. He is the Father of all, meaning that he created all things. Therefore, that means all things owe their existence to him. He rules it all. Paul goes on to say that God is over all and through all and in all. In other words, his rule is pervasive. His rule assures that this unity in the church will be preserved and maintained because it's based on, in his unity, and that unity will never be broken. And when you put all this together, you begin to see why this issue is so important to Paul. If we, God's people, allow anything to disunite us, we hinder what God is doing in the universe. We distort, we we mar the picture that we as the church are displaying of who God is and what God has done for us. I mean, it's a really big deal. And I hope as you're hearing this, you see the wonder the wonder of it. Friends, the greatest reality in the universe is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if you are a Christ follower, you are in Jesus. And what I'm about to say is all over all of Ephesians. You ought to go read it. And in fact, if you really want to get this message, you should sit down this week and read the entire letter to the Ephesians. You should look it up. This is part of what Paul tells us in Ephesians. He says, you have been made alive 
You were once dead in your sins and your trespasses. You couldn't see who Jesus really was. You were blind. You were walking around like dead men and dead women. When you thought of Jesus, maybe you thought of him as boring or irrelevant. If he was God, you didn't really care. You didn't want to have anything to do with him. Maybe you didn't like the way he ran the world. But then something happened. God came and God pursued you and God made you alive in Jesus Christ. And God opened your eyes to see the infinite value of Jesus that he is the most beautiful, the most precious person who ever was or ever will be. And you who once were enslaved to your sin, you have now been made alive, set free from your sin. You are alive to grace, adopted by God. You're in his family, and it just keeps going. It just keeps getting better and better. And that's like Ephesians 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And because of that, you have been united with people in God's family, And that's Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. And because of this one God, this one amazing gospel, these other people, just like you, have experienced conversion. And now what we get to do together is we get to display who our Father is, what Jesus Christ has done, how the Spirit has applied it all to our hearts. And friends, we must see this. When we're not unified, that doesn't happen. When we're polarized, we distort the picture. We do not honor God. Why? Because then our actions say that Christ and the unity he brings, well, that's not as great as my personal offense toward that person or my irritation toward him or her. We say that's not as great as my stance on this political or cultural issue. We make the differences between us greater than what Christ has done. Do you see? When you choose not to maintain unity, you elevate your offense, you elevate your opinions, you you make those things greater than the cosmic significance of the gospel, which is the greatest thing in the universe. Disunity is a serious thing. You know, in these last few months, I've had some conversations with different members of the Southwinds family, and I've been told that uh, I had drunk the Kool-Aid about some issue I have been told that what I was preaching was for weak Christians. And interestingly, along the way, I've received comments like this from both sides of the political aisle. I have annoyed people on the left and people on the right. Now, you should know that I'm okay. I'm not sharing this for sympathy. I'm sharing this just to to say how easy it is for us to elevate our ideas above what is ultimately important, and that is God's kingdom. Are you seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Or are you indifferent to our unity? Are you willing to ask yourself if you've elevated your opinions too high? Maybe God's speaking to some of us today. Maybe God has you listening right now for a reason. And maybe if God is putting his finger on your heart right now, here's what he's calling you to do. He is saying to you, I've already made you alive in Christ. You are mine. You're my child. I want you to act now like you're part of my family, because you already are. And here's the seriousness of this. God is saying to you, I want my glory to be displayed, and it will be based on the unity that we experience here. So that means if you've been living in ways or speaking words in ways or posting on social media in ways that leads to disunity, God calls you to repent to repent and be reconciled. He calls you to turn from that. He calls you to eagerly 
maintain the unity of the Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, in practical terms, that's verse 2. That's the third thing that we, we need to see today. You can write this down. We maintain unity when we humble ourselves. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Well, the answer is in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with none another in love. I submit to you, humbly, I hope, that what we need in this day, in this cultural moment, more than almost anything, is humility. Would you agree? Whatever perspective you have on all that's going on around us, that we could use some humility. This is not a political statement aimed at one side or the other. This is actually a theological statement aimed at all of us. We all need humility, starting with me. The Bible takes pride so seriously. It's actually the greatest problem in the universe. John Stott says pride is more than the first of seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sins. Pride is the greatest problem because pride sets itself up against God by seeking to steal the supreme place of authority, the place only God deserves. And we do that in our pride so that we can be exalted, not God. And that's why God hates pride. That's why God promises to oppose it because proud people, me and you, we seek to steal God's glory when we're proud. Furthermore, I want you to notice something. You know, words matter in Scripture. Did you notice there was an all in front of humility but not the rest of those words in that verse? Why? Well, I think for this reason. Humility is the foundation for the other four. If you don't get humility, you're not going to get the other four. I mean, just think about it. You cannot be gentle or patient or forbearing if you're not humble. Here's why. Proud people like us demand to have it our way. We demand our will be supreme. Our agenda must be first. And so proud people aren't patient because we want our way right away, all the way. No questions asked. And gentleness is... It's simply a consideration of others that expresses itself in in controlled strength. Proud people aren't gentle because they're just thinking about themselves, and so they power up on people. Gentleness is always an overflow of a humble heart. You know, what I love about this verse is it gives us a, a grid to discern our hearts. Just think about it. Do you consistently lack patience or gentleness? Or are you someone who consistently finds it difficult to bear with challenging people? If that's true of you, this verse helps you to see pride lurking in your heart. See, pride is present in all our hearts. But God has deliberately designed the reality of the gospel, which is found in Ephesians 1 through 3, found all throughout Scripture. God has designed the gospel to dismantle and destroy pride. And nothing triumphs over pride more than daily reminders of the gospel where we see the greatness of God displayed in Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the crucifixion of the Christ in our place, the the mind-blowing love of God seen in our adoption. You see, pride is killed when it stands before the gospel. And for us to be a people who walk in unity, pride must be destroyed. 
Truth is, the more we cultivate humility, the more we'll experience unity, the less often we'll experience conflict. And, and when conflict inevitably erupts, if we're humble, the more quickly we'll find a way through it. See, if humility and gentleness are like the ground, then, then patience and bearing with one another are like the overflow. When someone offends you or wounds you, you bear with it patiently, and you do that because Christ has been patient with you. That Christ, you, you remember, is always bearing with you, and aren't you so glad for that? See, Christ does that because of his love, and so we bear with one another because of our love. I don't want to miss the underlying assumption that Paul has here. Paul assumes that when the church gathers, we are a people of, uh, who have been united to Christ, and we are sinners. Sometimes we, we say that the church is a hospital for sinners. And, and you know, when you're with sinners, well, sinners going to sin. You will be sinned against in the church. And don't forget, you will sin against other people. And that's why Paul says this. That's why he sums everything up with love. Because love is the summation of all these other qualities. Love, Paul says, is what must characterize our worthy walking. He says we are to pursue humility and gentleness and patience and and bearing with one another in love. I love how John Piper defines love. He says, he says, love is an overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. You see, we know joy because of what God has done for us in his love. And so we overflow with that love toward others. And, and that loving overflow reveals itself in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in forbearance. I'm not sure, but probably some of you have been asking yourselves in this message, is there something going on at church? Why is he talking about this? And I want to be straightforward. The answer really is no, not really. I think that we are largely together, that we are largely unified. I think that maybe you could think of this message in terms that are very familiar to us in this moment. You can think of this message sort of like a vaccine. You know, we're all praying for a coronavirus vaccine. Why don't we pray that God's word will vaccinate all our hearts so that all of us, well, we can walk together in unity. Would you bow your heads? We're going to pray and we're going to celebrate in a few moments the Lord's Supper, but let's pray right now. Father, we pray as Jesus prayed the night before he gave his life for us. May we be one, Father, just as you and your son Jesus are one. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Christ is in us and Christ is among us. And so, Father, we ask for your power to help us walk in unity so that the world may believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as as we worship you in song again, as we then together in our homes celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And it is in Jesus' name, Father, that we pray. We pray all these things. And all God's people together, wherever you are, said, amen. As we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to begin by reading again from God's Word. Uh, This is 1 Corinthians 11, 
verses 23 to 29. Listen to the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let me remind you that the Lord's Supper is about several things. The Lord's Supper is about remembering. We remember what Jesus did for us and why it was necessary for him to die for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So each time we take the cup and the bread, we are to remember whose we are and the price God paid to redeem us or or buy us back from the penalty of our sin. We remember. The Lord's Supper is also about repenting. When we take the cup and the bread and remember all that Jesus has done for us, it opens us up to the Holy Spirit's conviction about sin in our lives. So the Lord's Supper is always calling us to repent of the attitudes of our hearts and the actions of our hands, which may be displeasing to God. The Lord's Supper is also about reconciling. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know this was a big problem in the church in Corinth. They had many broken relationships, and Paul was calling them to reconcile, and that may be God's call to some of us. And finally, the Lord's Supper is about recommitting. After remembering and repenting and reconciling, whenever we take the cup and eat of the bread, we are called to recommit ourselves once again to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to allow His Spirit to have control of our lives. And so it is in that spirit, remembering these realities that we take together. I hope you have with you uh, there in your home, uh, your bread and the cup, and you're holding them in your hands. And as you do that, I want to ask you, wherever you are, will you receive these symbols of Christ's sacrifice? Will you thank him now for his mercy and his grace? And will you allow him to fill you with his spirit and power once again. Let's share in this together. Would you join me now as we pray? Father, we thank you again for Jesus. We thank you again for grace. Lord, we thank you again for your patience and your mercy with us. Lord, as we live our lives, may we live with humility and gentleness and patience and love. 
We ask you to be with us this week, Father, and we ask you to bring us together next week. And Lord, we do ask that you would open the doors for us to soon regather physically. We pray all these things now as your people, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, Jesus our Lord. And everybody said, wherever you are, amen and amen. I'm going to leave you with a blessing. This is from Romans 15, 13, and this is what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a blessed week. We will see you next Sunday.